This is Facing Fentanyl. Interviews with actual users. That was my first encounter with fentanyl. Their experiences. My nose was to the steering wheel and I could barely stay awake. But most importantly, the lessons leading them out. I'm the only person in that picture that is still alive today. Where they can speak of what it is to be facing fentanyl. The following interviews depict substance use and mental health disorders, including abuse, depression, suicide, and trauma. If you or someone you know are suffering from these disorders, we recommend reaching out to the National Prevention Lifeline at suicidepreventionlifeline.org or the National Alliance on Mental Health at nami.org. That's N-A-M-I dot org. Listener discretion is advised. We'd like to thank our sponsor, La Jolla Recovery, before getting back to our interview. La Jolla Recovery is an alcohol and drug treatment center in San Diego, providing evidence-based solutions to addiction for over 12 years. The pandemic has impacted mental health immensely, and if you're wondering whether a loved one or yourself might be using a substance beyond recreation or fun or social bonding, La Jolla Recovery wants to answer all your questions in a private and confidential manner at LaJollaRecovery.com. That's L-A-J-O-L-L-A Recovery.com. That's again L-A-J-O-L-L-A Recovery.com. Now back to our interview. 2009? 2010? I want to say it was 2009. They they banned original Oxycontin and they stopped making it. But prior to that, uh, me and my buddies, we would take my buddy's minivan, his grandma's minivan, and we would call these Florida pain clinics and would each set up three or four appointments. We All six of us would get in the minivan, we would drive down to Florida, and we would make all three appointments. And these places were super... Medical tourism. Right. These They're, they're called pill mills, you know, and they're just like... No insurance, cash only, and they dispense the pills there. So you walk in, you see a doctor, basically ask you, what do you want? Oh, 240, 80 milligram Oxycontin, and then say like 120, 40 milligram Oxycontin. 240? Insane amounts. 300, 240, yeah, 180, common, super common in Florida back then. How much do they sell for what they sell them for? Um, at the time, 2008, if we bring it back to Georgia, Oxycontin is a dollar a milligram. So those 80s that we paid... Um, probably like, I think it was like 240 for the prescription and they dispensed the pills there. So you walk in the doctor's office, see the doctor for briefly, what basically, how do you want, meet with him for two or three minutes, bounce out, you dispense your pills at the counter and you leave. Were you ever in a situation where just any normal empathetic doctor would say, you're, you're, I couldn't do this? Did you ever wonder, I can't believe that this is happening? It was hard to believe, but like you go to you go to Florida, uh, like a veto, Tampa, Orlando, and you see like um, any any pain clinic you see on a billboard or like sticking out online or like even back then in like uh, yellow pages, just super shicey. They're pill mills. That's all they were. They weren't all these pain management clinics in Florida were like they all got shut down for good reason. So it wasn't hard to to find. No, no, no. And like, you know, we go down there, we set up three appointments each and we come back each with like a million Oxycontin. And, um, you know, my intent was not to sell them. My intent was like, I thought I was getting the deal of a lifetime and I can continue to, you know, feed my habit. And, you know, we had so much Oxycontin that no one was in my circle was using IV back then because we had so much we didn't need to. We would just eat or snort or smoke them. Um, and then... They they crashed the pill mills. The the feds came down on all these pill mills in Florida, and they crashed them down. And um, and they and then the, shortly after there, they banned oxycotton. And even back then, like if a doctor wrote, there were a lot of pharmacies where if they wrote you a prescription oxycotton, they wouldn't fill them if they were 40s or above. So oxycotton was available at like 10, 20, 
40, 80, and then rared fine, but they had them with 160 milligrams. And 40 or above, they didn't, they, these pharmacies would have refused to fill them just for like ethical issues. Just because they kind of they kind of caught on what was going on there, these pharmacies were pushing out so much oxy, oxycontin. They're like, well, "What the fuck are we doing?" Like, would you say that at that moment, the tolerance that you've built, it's hard to say how you feel when you take them. It, is it something that when you start, it is most profound, and as time goes by, it's just something that you need to eventually just be able to have an active life? Oh, for sure, yeah. So, the most like I remember vividly remember. The the breakthrough experience I had with opiates was I took a, a four milligram hydromorphone. It was dilated, and I was my buddy was like, "Do it," and I was like, "Dude, I, t- I ate one last time. I just swallowed it last time. It didn't do anything." He's like, "Bro, you have to crush it and you have to snort it." And I remember I crushed and I snorted that pill, and like ten minutes later, I was just like, "God, I just remember thinking I want to feel like this all day, every day for the rest of my life, and for the next like twelve years, I tried, you know." And then after a while, that experience, you have to take more and more to even get close. And then at that, and then when you're in full physical opiate addiction, you cannot function. You can't do normal things unless you're high on opiates. You know what I mean? Like I wouldn't even consider like getting out of bed and taking a shower and getting ready if I didn't wake up and have dope to do, you know? Um, it controls your life. Once you're physically addicted to opiates, like, Obtaining drugs and doing drugs is first and foremost, and everything else is like secondary, whether that be taking care of your kid, paying your bills, you know, like ha- even having a place to live. You know, those, those things all come secondary. Like everything else is like acquiring drugs and getting high. And then basically in my mindset back then, everything else was I'll figure it out later. That's how I looked at everything else. I'll figure it out later. Was your first experience of fentanyl similar to that first uh, experience with Dilaudid? Yeah, I... I because, um, you know, I got irritated. I, I was eating this gel fentanyl patch, and I was like, what the fuck? You think I'm not getting loaded? I thought this shit was supposed to be strong. I was like, oh, maybe they're old. You know, maybe they're expired. She's had them for a while. You know, they just found them after she passed, blah, blah, blah. So I just continued to eat more. And I was, I'd never been that high for that long off, off a substance. Um, and I, you know, but they're really hard to find. I didn't really see too much of them, like, pharmaceutical grade fentanyl after that you know they're kind of hard to come by for me personally i don't know about other areas and other friends and people in other circles but for me i didn't really come across them um too often after that if i did they're really expensive um but then like like 2013 2014 it's starting to be available in my area in like powder form and then and uh, what's the word on the street what are people saying from their experiences um you know they know it's bad they know it's they know it's probably the deadliest drug out there but they run that risk because like for economical reasons you know it's cheaper and it's more potent and um you know say i buy this gram of heroin for x amount of dollars and this gram of fentanyl is x amount of dollars maybe a little bit more but you know you can stretch that gram far longer than you'd be able to do the heroin and it's more potent and it's cheaper so it's just an easy decision at that point in time you're willing to run that risk you've been shooting heroin for so long anyway it's like what is this you know and at my you know i've always considered myself quote unquote careful when when i shot heroin i'd be like oh i know what i'm doing i've been doing this for a minute you know i always try a little bit first and then go from there um but with the fentanyl you know i i really did for the longest because I, i shot heroin for like nine years i never overdosed and when i say that i'm I'm not sure. I've never been hit with Narcan up until like 
later on in life. Um, and I never like had been revived or anything. So I considered myself like, Oh, I kind of know what I'm doing. I've never overdosed. You know, I know my tolerance, you know, I, I know my body, I know how much I can do, but then, you know, like the raw fentanyl comes into play, especially if you go to like treatment and you get some time sober because your tolerance is going to drop drastically. So that's where a lot of people like, um, unfortunately die, dude. Like recently these, these kids have like left treatment, their tolerance is really low and they go back to doing the amount that they did before and they drop dead, you know, thankfully I was, you know, when I overdosed, I was around people or someone found me, had they not, you know, I, I probably wouldn't be alive today. But I'm pretty sure nobody's expecting to overdose. That's that's the it happens to the person next next to me. Right. For yeah, I never thought I, I would overdose. Are, are what is is there a situation? Is it because you were probably taking something that was stronger than you than you thought? Uh, yeah. So, so so the first overdose I had it was like. Uh, me and the girl I was dating at the time, also a female in treatment, awful decision. Um, both had gnarly heroin and fentanyl addictions. Um, we both leave treatment and um, start getting high again shortly thereafter, less than 24 hours. And um, I remember at the time, man, I, you know, I had uh, I have a certain hobby and my pro most prized possession goes to that hobby. And um, literally my most prized possession. So we're living in like an Airbnb for a few days. And then I sell it online and I go into a Staples to ship it off because I sold my most prized possession for X amount of dollars, $600. So I go to send it off to the guy who bought it online. And then um, I asked the guy at Staples, I was like, hey, do you have a bathroom? Because I had some fentanyl and um, I wanted to do it. And he was like, yeah. And he gave me the key. So I go in the key. I, or I take the key, I go into the bathroom, and I do a shot of fentanyl, and then I just remember instantly, as soon as the rush hit, I was like, oh, fuck, I did too much. And it was like slow motion. I just remember myself going down sideways. With like I had this heavy-ass backpack with all my belongings in it, and I'm just going down sideways, and I just remember hitting the floor, and that's the last thing I remember. And um, thankfully, the guy that gave me the key was like, well, what the fuck? You know, I gave this kid the key like 15 or 20 minutes ago. I wonder if he's all right or what, I don't know. He came and checked on me and I was on the floor. And the next thing I know, I woke up in the hospital and my girlfriend was next to me. And they're like, dude, you overdose. This is Facing, Facing Fentanyl. Fentanyl.